All right. Um, so this is the first interview on September 14th. Hi, I'm Anna Thorndike. And over the course of the next nine months, I'll be examining the unique health needs and barriers to accessing healthcare of people who are experiencing homelessness. I'm spending this year working with organizations that specialize in medical and behavioral health care for homeless populations. For the next few months, I'm working on the ground at the Mission Neighborhood Resource Center in San Francisco, California. This podcast is a work in progress, somewhat like the way we care for the homeless in this country. I'm hoping to give voices to the people who are combating homelessness as providers and staff members, as well as the people who are experiencing the unstable living conditions themselves. What are their lives like? What challenges do they face? And how do we, as a society, do a better job of caring for some of the most vulnerable among us? In this first episode, I'll be talking to Emily, a nurse practitioner at the Mission Neighborhood Resource Center. Throughout our conversation, Emily opens up about the challenges and triumphs of treating homeless patients and learning on the go. It is the patients here being I mean, so there's a range, right? There's patients who are on the street, like there's a number of patients who are like literally sitting on the street homeless. And then there's, you know, kind of more formally homeless or, you know, they sleep in SROs um, or hotels or shelters. So it's still homeless in certain ways, um, but not on the street. When, as you can imagine, when a lot of the patients, other needs aren't met, they, some of like their more medical needs are sort of the last, thing on the agenda. You know, our healthcare system is so disjointed that, you know, not having someone on site, okay, so I can like send that, try to send them somewhere else, but then, you know, it's hard to get records. Mm -hmm. But first, I want to talk a little bit about what homelessness looks like in San Francisco. Every two years, the city conducts an event called the Point in Time Count. On one night in January, teams of volunteers scan the shelters, streets, and parks of San Francisco to measure the prevalence of homelessness in the city. During the latest count in 2019, the number of people who were counted as homeless on that night in January was 8,035. But that's just one night. The yearly estimate of people who experience homelessness in the city is thought to be closer to 20,000. In a survey that accompanied the count last year, only one quarter of homeless individuals reported using healthcare services and even fewer reported using mental health services or drug and alcohol counseling. Yet, this population consistently demonstrates greater health needs, both medical and behavioral, than the general population. The U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development defines homelessness as living in a supervised publicly or privately operated shelter designated to provide a temporary living arrangement 
or with a primary nighttime residence that is a public or private place not designed for or ordinarily used as a regular sleeping accommodation for human beings, including a car, park, abandoned building, bus or train station, airport or camping ground. Whoa. That's what the point in time count has to use for one reason or another. But the city of San Francisco actually has a definition which also includes people who are doubled up in the homes of family or friends, individuals staying in jails, hospitals, or rehab facilities, and families living in single-room occupancy, SRO, units. Many of the people who are only included in the San Francisco definition, specifically those who are doubled up or living in SROs, are people who seek out and benefit from the resources offered at local social service organizations in the city. The Mission Neighborhood Health Center is one such community organization. A two-floor complex in the heart of the Mission District, the Resource Center provides a wide array of services for homeless clients in a centralized location. Showers, laundry, lockers, computer access, case managers, substance use counselors, therapists, and a full clinical team. The COVID-19 pandemic reshuffled the way things work around here, but the Resource Center has stayed open with modifications throughout the entire pandemic. Okay, that's enough details. Back to Emily. Um, I am a new graduate mm -hmm. um, as a family nurse practitioner. I um, did a program through the federal government called Nurse Corps. Okay. Um, they, that is something you apply for before you start school, and then if you get it, they pay your full tuition and give you a living stipend in return for two years of service when you graduate where you must work at a federally qualified healthcare center, okay. which this is, mm -hmm. um, and there's a bunch. Um, and so when I graduated, I was specifically only looking for F2HCs to work at. Um, so um, this was a place that offered me the job. Um, specifically, the homeless center here, what attracted me in particular was my mentor, Dr. Neil Sharon, um, who unfortunately ended up leaving after a few months when I was here. And then, um, a really like beautiful sense of community as you've probably seen like mm -hmm. downstairs mm -hmm. um and like the day center um and honestly also there's a lower patient volume here in other clinics which mm -hmm. attracted me because as a new provider you have so much to do or any sure. provider there's just so much work um yeah so that's how I ended up here. It was really kind of like a material thing. Like I, you know, I was looking at FHCs, mm -hmm. and but then also I was really attracted specifically to the um, to the resource center because of my mentor here, and I heard great things about the nurse Hank and the um, medical assistant Tanya. Yeah. Had you had any experience working with homeless patients, like in school, or was this kind of no. like your first? So mm -hmm. part of what was so hard about this for me, and you'll find that I'm, I'm leaving mm -hmm. um, this week. Um, is that I didn't I didn't feel adequately prepared sure. for this. Mm -hmm. um, and since this clinic only has two patient rooms, um, 
means like it doesn't work so well for them to have more than one provider here at a time. And as a new provider, mm -hmm. I have so many questions like all the time. And um, luckily, like I have one NP in particular, I call, I would call like five times a day, like with oh, questions, and he always nice. always answers. Yeah, mm -hmm. um, but it the com I don't know if we can get into this like the complexity of patients' health issues. Mm -hmm. It, it just really fell over, I was just in over my head. Mm -hmm. And my preceptorship, which is like my clinicals while I'm in school, I was serving like a more like upper middle class wow. population. So I really just, there's so much that I just have never seen before. Mm -hmm. And to be here by myself, just kind of for me felt um, like not totally appropriate. It was, yeah, it, you know, I'm incredibly proud of myself because um, mm -hmm. I do feel like I ended up getting really good care, um, but there were definitely moments where I felt it's really hard when you have people who are so vulnerable and desperate for help and you are the person that they're coming to and you feel like you don't know how to help mm -hmm. them even though you're supposed to. I'm feeling really sad about leaving mm -hmm. because I'm now more established with the patients. I, they feel really good with, well, I mean, I'm not gonna speak for all of them, but mm -hmm. the ones that I've talked to about that I'm leaving feel really good with me, and they're really, they're really sad I'm leaving, and also for them, they're like, oh, okay, like another providers. Yeah. Like, we expected this, like, yeah. because the people just come in and out. Um, and I really didn't want that to happen. Mm -hmm. Like, when I came in, I really wanted to provide stability. Um, so that is disappointing for me, too. Um, but I do feel like I'm leaving them in good hands, at the very least, with mm -hmm. Dr. Adler, who has, like, 30 years' experience. Mm -hmm. um, and... And like I feel really good about the fact that he was able to be with like basically spend a month with me that we're able to kind of do this like nice handoff where we go in together. He's meeting patients and able to mm -hmm. send, like you know be there and, and the transfer the care, transfer mm -hmm. the trust. Mm -hmm. Obviously not with all patients, mm -hmm. but that feels good. As a provider, you need that support network too, and you can't be on your own and providing the best care possible so like it sounds like you really did the best with what you had but it's really hard when you don't feel supported um, as the one who's responsible for so many people yeah um, yeah and, and like it, it really I really did have people that I was able to call and that was so helpful but it's just different than having someone here and sure. I sort of knew that I just didn't really think it was gonna happen as quickly to mm -hmm. be on my own and I also think what what Hank said was I just happened the very beginning to get a bunch of the super complex patients mm -hmm. all at once, which was like that and that was about the time that I put in my notice because mm -hmm. I was like I just can't do this. Um, but now a lot of those patients are more under control. I'm more confident, and I'm also seeing that there are a number of patients who really aren't as sick as you would imagine. They really do their health is okay. Um, and so now I'm realizing, you know, actually I think I could have stayed, but I already have a job somewhere else. So, and then maybe I was thinking we could talk a little bit about the health complications that you've seen yeah. and um, like what have you seen that's very unique to this population or sort of uh, way out of proportion in this population yeah. and then what are the challenges as a provider with um, sort of connecting with patients, but also helping them improve their quality yeah. of life. Mm -hmm. um, so it is, the, the patients 
here being, I mean, so there's a range, right? There's patients who are on the street, like there's a number of patients who are like literally sleeping on the street homeless. And then there's, you know, kind of more formally homeless or, you know, they sleep in SROs um, or hotels or shelters. So it's still homeless in certain ways, um, but not on the street. Um, and then there's people who are just really insecurely housed. So some people do have apartments and stuff, um, or or were formerly homeless and then okay. finally after ten years got an apartment at, on the lottery in the city or whatever. Um, so it does make a big difference, kind of what kind of housing they are in and mm -hmm. kind of what complications. So like for instance, like our patients with diabetes from on the street, like insulin should be refrigerated, sure. right? Like how are they going to use yeah. insulin? Um, but so yeah, so let's see. There, like, there's it's a multitude of factors affecting the health. So firstly, what I've noticed is a lot of the illnesses actually have what are what have led them to homelessness, mm -hmm. and then of course sometimes the homelessness itself is exacerbating the illness. You know, it's just like cycle. So I've seen so the, you know there's the kind of obvious stuff of mental illness and drug addiction, mm -hmm. which go hand in hand, and that's a large portion. Um, but then there's also like a good number of patients with like physical disabilities and physical injuries that, that you know, I, I don't know them so well to say 100% that's what led to their homelessness, mm -hmm. but I mean, that's why they haven't been able to work, you know, so mm -hmm. like I have a good number of patients who work in construction, like fell. Yeah. Right, and then like they have had back pain for decades, or they have a mangled foot, mm -hmm. or you know that kind of thing. Um, when, as you can imagine, when a lot of the patients' other needs aren't met, they some of like their more medical needs are sort of the last thing on the agenda. Sure. So you'll have patients come in and like their A1C, which is um, their blood sugar measure of the past three months. Um, if you have diabetes, it's diagnosed if it's above six point five. Um, goal is below seven, um, you know, 14 is like off the charts. You'll have someone come in with like A1C of 14, but they, you know, like don't have a place to sleep or aren't able to find food. They don't care, like they're, they're not able to deal with that. Or mm -hmm. you have patients who their sight conditions or addictions are so out of mm -hmm. control that you can't really deal with the rest of it. You know, our healthcare system is so disjointed that you know, not having someone on site, okay, so I can like send that, try to send them somewhere else, but then, you know, it's hard to get records mm -hmm. and it's hard to really like communicate. That, you know, can happen eventually, but with this population, it's kind of hard to follow mm -hmm. through and mm -hmm. stuff. Which came first, the chicken or the egg? Poor health or homelessness? Emily makes a really good point about the cycle of homelessness. You can see how it's hard to maintain good health if you're sleeping on the sidewalk or you don't have anywhere to store your medications. But it's equally hard to pay your rent or maintain stable housing if you are extremely sick or injured. And then, you know, if patients are out of care for a long time too, which happens with this population, you know, these diseases which if, if it's being made, if, this, if these patients had more resources or, you know, the diseases would be just like not nearly as advanced basically, right? Yeah. So I think that was like a big sh kind of shock for me was how medically complex the patients were and how difficult that was. Um, you know, having patients who had like end-stage renal disease, you know, A1C over 14, 
heart failure, you know, every, like, so many different things. And a lot of them was, a lot of, it was, um, you know, a lot of, I had young patients with, like, heart failure because of meth, like, meth or cocaine use and stuff. So I just felt, like, totally in over my head. So there's so many different compounding things affecting. And then you'll have patients who are, like, super well-managed, you know, come in and they're just living on the street, but they're taking their medications and they're, you know, finding ways to get exercise when they can, you know, like, yeah. just incredibly resilient and mm-hmm. really just have things under control. Mm-hmm. Like, and there's a good number of patients like amazing. that, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it's like how it's sort of, uh, I guess, with the former, what you were describing, the very complex patients, how do you choose as a provider what to prioritize? They come in with, uh, like, really mismanaged chronic conditions, but also very, like, um, I don't know, pertinent present conditions, like a wound or, like, um, I don't know, any other example, like an injury, something like that. I mean, you always kind of triage, so it's always, yeah, if they had a wound or if they have an infection or something, Mm -hmm. that's always kind of number one, Mm -hmm. and then you talk about, you know, your wound isn't going to heal or it's not healing because of your diabetes, it's so out of control, like, you're going to keep having this if Mm -hmm. you don't, if you don't take Mm -hmm. your medication, Mm -hmm. that kind of thing. and then with those patients, you just try to schedule a bunch of follow-ups, okay. basically. So you're like, okay, we're going to deal with this today, come back in, what, like, a week, and we're, you know, we're going to try to deal with this then, or, like, you know, a lot of them are over when, when they get to the point, these are usually kind of a little bit of the older patients, you mm-hmm. know, it gets to a point where they're taking, like, 10 to 15 medications. It's like, come in, meet with my nurse, he can set up Medisats, which are these, like, um, you know, like plastic boxes okay. that can organize them. Mm-hmm. They, and they can get them like organized, mailed to them, or they can come in, you know, weekly and just pick them up. And and so I try to get as many patients who are taking a bunch of meds to do that as possible, because mm-hmm. for them, it, yeah, they're carrying like a bag of like 20 pill bottles, it's super overwhelming. A lot of the ones who are really sick are in and out of the emergency department, sure. as you can imagine. Mm-hmm. So a lot of that for me um, is like looking and making sure, you know, looking at that note and figuring out what led to that and, oh, okay, usually it's like they weren't taking their meds or, they, they, you know, maybe they um, did cocaine and that exacerbated their um, heart failure mm-hmm. or something like that mm-hmm. and now they're feeling better. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it's just trying to get them as into as stable a place as possible mm-hmm. to then, and deal with the, mo- the most acute thing and then try to get them to come back like frequently mm-hmm. so that we can because you know we only have so much time in one visit mm-hmm. but if you have a follow-up then you can like okay now we can deal with this now we yeah. can deal with that well actually just um Part of the reason I've, I'm interested in this work is, uh, well, I'm hoping to go to medical school, but oh, cool. I spent the past two summers working in emergency departments, mm. and I just saw the same homeless patients coming in week after week, and it was um, just sort of blew my mind. Like I was, I was shocked that this was happening, and then they'd be released, and it didn't seem like there was a whole lot of support given besides like maybe a piece of paper describing the nearest like clinic like this and so yeah I guess I wanted to hear like do you think that places like the resource center are making a difference in like bridging that gap and mitigating that Mm -hmm. absolutely like um there's so many of our patients would be going to the ED if it weren't for 
the resource center. So there's still patients who end up in the ED, of course, like mm-hmm. that we treat. Um, and there's some patients that are just like really just not in a place to improve and they're just gonna keep going back to ED mostly mostly because of like drug addiction or mm-hmm. psych stuff. Mm-hmm. And so some of those patients what we need they need like full time care, you know. Mm-hmm. Like um like outpatient um primary care. It's just like not enough. Like especially with this like mm-hmm. stuff. It's just they need to be like taken care of more. But mm-hmm. um but no, a lot of our patients are able to come in here for things that they would have to go to the ED if mm-hmm. they mm-hmm. didn't have this place. So absolutely it makes a huge difference. Yeah. But and still of course we will send people to the ED when they need to go. Yeah. Is there a strong communication line or is that just like you get the note and then you're kind of deciphering it? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a I know problem that's probably not part system. of their job res- responsibility or job description is to like communicate with the local health center, but perhaps no, it kind of is like a big part of our job is is like coordinating care between specialists and between emergency department, and we can call like we can call ahead and say, hey, we have this patient with this, this, this. Like, can you look out for that and mm-hmm. send them, or mm-hmm. you know. We'll I'll read the discharge note and they'll have pretty good instructions on like follow up with the PCP sure. like order this lab check on this and that's really good. Okay. Um, but in a more I think organized healthcare system, um, like we should all be sharing the same medical record system. Do you know what I mean? Like it's mm-hmm. like if my patient goes to most like a hospital that's not within the epic system that I can see, then I have no idea like what happened. So like if they call 911 and they happen to take them somewhere else, like then I'm really like- In the dark. In the dark. Mm-hmm. Um, SF General, I can see everything. So mm-hmm. that's really good. But that's ridiculous to me. Like we should have a healthcare system where, like I had a patient who was talking about how his friend was a doctor in Europe is like, when you go there, like they can see all of your health records from like you, the time you were like, you know, in a child, yeah. like anywhere in the country. It's like makes so much sense. It's yeah. ridiculous. Like we, like I, I have a patient who's been going to LA for some of his healthcare, and it's like I have no, I don't know what like, you know, so he had a surgery down there. Like I don't even, I don't know exactly what it was, mm-hmm. and it's hard to track down. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. So yeah, no, it's like a totally disjointed system. Yeah, I have very strong opinions about yeah. the healthcare system. I guess like quote unquote the way the U.S. is dealing with it is like having emergency rooms spit people out and maybe have a patient navigator follow up and connect them. But um, yeah. Yeah. No. <laughs> so, it's, yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. We can go on. Yeah. 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 It's, yeah. it's not. It doesn't. So much of our system doesn't make sense. It really frustrates me. Yeah. I mean, a big issue too is like part doctors and providers and everyone are just so overworked because when we have a system where the bottom line is profit, not like patient outcomes, um, and you get paid per number of people you see, not mm-hmm. per complexity, not per amount of workload. Like, it, you know, it is completely nonsensical. Mm-hmm. And that's partly just because of the way insurance pays. I think overall, it's, everyone is so burnt out. Yeah. And I knew, and like, yeah. I can see it, you know? Yeah. Like, yeah, I mean, that's a just personally major fear of mine going into this kind of work, you know, like, uh, I, I want to get community-based experience this year, not just study science the whole way through, but like really feel like what is it like to work with such a vulnerable population? But um, yeah, clearly there's a lot of challenges and how do you prevent physician burnout? 
is just this question no one knows how to answer. Well, that's, yeah, that's, you know, I feel like places like to be like, oh, well, like, here we offer, like, this meditation mm -hmm. app, and mm -hmm. it's like, what, what we need is a different structure of, like, yeah. a, a different... Not like, a two-minute, like... Yeah, <laughs> like, like, they need less work. Like, there's so much work in the healthcare system that is not necessary. Yeah. And, like, it, you know, like, it yeah. just, it really makes my blood boil. You know, and that's the other thing, like, it's also with homelessness and health, it's like, it's not just, of course, on the medical system, it's like, patients need housing, right? Like, mm -hmm. like it's such like a multifaceted issue, it's like, mm -hmm. they need housing, they need social networks, like, you know, like, yeah. so many of them are so lonely and, like, are just so, like, you know, stigmatized mm -hmm. it's so hard like that is such a huge issue too i don't do behavioral health um but yeah that's a big part of it for my patients and it's been really hard with the pandemic and the fires because they're all like stuck in their like single occupancy you know yeah. rooms they can't like interact yeah. with each other I and mean, we're all feeling that mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. it's especially but hard exacerbated that. yeah or they're inhaling all the toxins and sitting out of right. the street right or exactly yeah, exactly no, mm -hmm. like, totally I, yeah you know a lot of my patients do have rooms but i i, I do mean like yeah of course so also so many of them are just on the street and just getting that all the yeah. carcinogens yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Okay, well, I guess on the flip side of all of this, like, there are so many challenges we've talked about, and it can be so frustrating, but are there, like, any aspects of your work here that you've found to be, like, especially inspiring or motivating, like, maybe in terms of um, progress or, yeah. Um, yeah? Yeah, no, there's patience. You know, I think I'm happy that I've been here, even though I haven't been here a very long time. I've been here long enough that I've been able to see some progress, and I think mm -hmm. that was something that was really hard at the beginning, yeah. was that I wasn't seeing any, uh, like, so I was just like, everyone's sick, and yeah. I don't even know if I'm doing anything, like, well, like, um, and then now, after, like, being here eight months, I, I have been able to see patients who are like, oh, wow, the blood sugar's really dropped, or, like, this pain condition has gotten better, or gone away, you know, um, or, you know, they got in for this surgery and it's really helped. And so that feels so good to, like, be able to make such tangible mm -hmm. differences for these mm -hmm. patients. Um, give them medication. You know, we have a little pharmacy here. Being able to just, like, give them things, like, yeah. hand it to them, mm -hmm. like, feels so good. Mm -hmm. Like, here's some eye drops. You know, here's, like, a, like a you know, antifungal cream. Mm -hmm. You know, just, mm -hmm. that feels awesome. And, like... You know, for some patients, they don't have anyone else they really like talk to that much, and so I'm like, I'm like just like a big sentimental like, <laughs> like I don't know. I, I I could see myself going into psych in the future, sure. or like because mm -hmm. I, I really really like behavioral health and psych and stuff, mm -hmm. and um, being able to like provide that space for patients mm -hmm. feels incredibly useful, and you can see what a difference it makes them like when they're so often treated um like subhuman basically is how our society treats homeless people um being able to like, provide a space where like they're our patient right like yeah. and they come in and are treated with dignity and respect and we're here just to help them like you can see it on their faces a lot of them and mm -hmm. the way that they come back and they and they're like a lot of them are like really like um they're just, like so sweet and appreciative mm -hmm. and it's, a lot of them aren't and that's fine too but um but that like that's been something that's been emotional for me with leaving is mm -hmm. I didn't even like really realize 
because I've been so hard on myself with how mm-hmm. like difficult this job has been and feeling like I, I didn't have enough experience to provide them the care that I wanted to. But having them, like a lot of them when I tell them I'm leaving are like really, um, I wouldn't say just straw. I'm not going to give myself that much credit. <laughs> but like are not happy and like real and and like express like a lot of gratitude mm-hmm. for my work and that. It's really great and it. it I think what I've even noticed in my two weeks here is that like this place is a community where like people are known and like mm-hmm. these people, some of them might not feel known anywhere else. Mm-hmm. Um, and so just to feel like welcome and recognized as like who they are and not just a patient probably means a lot to them, mm-hmm. I guess. Yeah. yeah, and it feels good with some of our wraparound services too. It feels good to be able to be like, do you need a therapist? Like, cool, like, we have a therapist here. Like, do you mm-hmm. need a substance abuse counselor? Like, here's that. You know, mm-hmm. do you need help with social services? We have people downstairs that mm-hmm. can help with that. Mm-hmm. Like, it's nice to have kind of be in an environment where there's, like, this wraparound. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then, of course, yeah, some of the patients who get better, that's just, like, the best. Yeah. Um, we're just doing so much better after a few visits. But then, yeah, and then you have the patients who are just, like, no matter what, that doesn't happen. But... That was yeah. the question. The question's yeah. on the positive. So no, yeah. no, and, and and I feel like another important part of this is like, um, I, I maybe I'm projecting, but that sometimes you might not be able to like treat someone or extend their length of their life, but you might be able to like improve the quality of mm-hmm. their life, and that that's sort of meaningful in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, definitely. Mm-hmm. There, there's definitely a lot of that. Yeah, and it's yeah, and it's so important to figure out like what patients' goals are. Um, I think as a provider, you can get really stuck on, like, lab numbers and, you know, like, okay, this is getting better, but if they, you know, if their goals are different than yours, that's not going to work. Like, you have to really kind of be like, okay, what do you really want? And there's some patients who, like, really, like, just aren't, like, don't, just aren't that concerned about what we're concerned about, and so you just have to kind of be a team and be like, okay, well, let's focus on that today. That's mm-hmm. what you want. How, how could an organization like the Resource Center do a better job at reaching this population? Okay, well then I mean, I will just be totally honest. Like, mm-hmm. um, I think it's glaringly obvious since I'm leaving that like provider turnover is an issue. And mm-hmm. I think that is like bottom line, like just like a huge, like it's just, just a big problem because mm-hmm. um, there's not even enough shifts open by the provider right now to serve a bunch more people sure and the patients you know a lot of the patients are like everyone who comes in is really good and like you know it's okay but I, I really do feel like we lose a lot of patients when because you know we don't have stability with that mm-hmm. um, because once they develop trust with you they're so much more likely to come back and they want to see you and mm-hmm. stuff um, so I think things that could improve providers staying just generally working on like keeping providers here is yeah. like kind of like one of the most important things mm-hmm. possible mm-hmm. um to keep the clinic in good shape yeah. like hank having been here for seven years like he's literally the glue of that yeah there's so many like complicated things like for instance we, have, we see a lot of trans patients mm-hmm. um it's a pretty like specific process to get them in for their gender affirming surgery. Sure. You really have to have like specific things in the notes, specific forms you have to fill out, a certain person you send everything to. Um, it has to be coordinated with behavioral health. 
if like I were leaving and Hank were leaving, he's not, um, but like that could just be completely lost, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. so like the continuity of people working mm -hmm. here, and, like the processes that, and just sort of workflows of things. It's not just the building patient trust that's lost. It's sort of this whole like efficiency of, mm -hmm. of the clinic working. Exactly. Emily is one of those providers who puts her heart into her work. You can tell. We need more people like Emily. But it seems, perhaps, we also might need to figure out how to sustain these providers, to promote their happiness and well-being in the face of complicated and emotionally demanding patient conditions. So thank you, Emily for sharing your experience. And thank you to the Mission Neighborhood Resource Center. This is Curbside Manor.